You're listening to Stir Crazy with Steve Jenkins. Conversations with creatives during the quarantine. Hey folks, welcome to Stir Crazy with Steve Jenkins. I'm Steve Jenkins. I've got some news. So for the rest of this month, that being May 2020, it's just going to be one episode per week for this week and next week. And then going back to June, it'll be two episodes per week. Reason being is I'm working on some things and I'm trying to get some stuff happening and I need to free up some time. But mostly I'm trying to avoid some creative burnout. I'd imagine a lot of us are probably feeling that way right now uh, because we're about like two months in. But anyway, to make up for this, today's episode is a bit longer than normal. It's two hours, and my guest this week is Jonathan Herrera. Jonathan is a stellar bass player, and he's played with people like Cathedrals, Motar, the drummer from The Meters, Zigaboo Modelista, Stanley Jordan, Osnoy, Garage Mahal, all kinds of folks. He also wrote for Bass Player Magazine and at one point became the editor-in-chief and then he stepped down in 2010, even though after that he still wrote for them. It was John that actually helped me get a column in there for a few issues in 2016. Bass Player Magazine eventually got sold and the old guard, which includes people like John, Chris Jeezy, John DeAuria, and other folks, started the online publication Bass Magazine and he writes for them as well. And besides all that, John owns Dime Studios, which is in the Bay Area, and it's a kick-ass place to record music, film videos, or be creative in a really cool space. John and I talk about all kinds of stuff. We talk about politics, we talk about the music business, we talk about the changes in the music business. He has some great takes on the current state of things and what someone would probably have to do to stay afloat in these times. He talks about weird L.A. bullshit that made him want to move up to the Bay Area. It's a great talk. It's two hours long. It never felt like two hours, and I hope you all enjoy it. I'm also going to come clean and admit that I forgot to hit record, so the first 15 minutes of our conversation was not documented, but we dove right back in and didn't miss a beat, and here's how our conversation went. Well, you're asking about, well, I don't know how you want to start it, though. Yeah, let's talk about routines. So my routine... I mean, I guess, you know, we were talking before before we started recording, like, you know, I was saying it's important to, uh, we're all kind of in this default routine state because there's only so many options. So, you know, I've been trying to kind of do a new little thing every day as much as I possibly can, whether that's walking somewhere different or getting on my bike or whatever. Um, but my routine, I, I feel lucky because I have two places to be basically, or two or three places. Um, and uh, and one of them is is a studio, so I can, you know, come in here and be isolated, but be around all, all the fun toys and stuff, and and um, that's that's basically it. So I wake up in the morning. I haven't. This hasn't really. I haven't completely let myself go as far as like I've been trying. You know, this is from past experience with other traumas I've been through. You know, anxiety I've been through is like, I know for myself it's important for me to keep a routine as far as like waking up and taking a shower and putting on, you know, like trying mm-hmm. to function like a normal, relatively hygienic adult. Um, it helps me stay sane. And then, yeah, so I just get up and come to the studio and hang here and, and give myself permission to have days where I don't feel like I can do much and, um, you know, putter around. I've been trying to come up with projects for myself. I've done a couple little videos and um, doing some of those, you know, collaborative recording 
little projects just to stay busy and uh but yeah it is uh, yeah how about you you got a routine i sort of have a routine um i've been tr- you know I, I try to wake up pretty much before 10 you know like mm-hmm. that's for me if i can if i can get up when are you going to bed um you know i've it's been it's been kind of fluid like Usually I wind down around midnight, but it's been two. I've been playing a lot of video games. Man, because see, I'm jealous. You got what do you got? What's your system? Uh, I have a Switch, so I've been yeah. playing. I've been playing Zelda, and I did dope, just right? get. An, yeah, it's super dope. And then I also I got um, Animal Crossing, so I've been playing that. Uh-huh. Um, I just find that honestly, because I, I bought my Switch back in 2018, and okay. I got tired about. I got tired of reading the news before I went to bed, which mm. is definitely like a habit I could have changed without buying anything. But yeah. I just, I just feel like, you know, I'd rather go to bed thinking about like some shrines that I need to find in Zelda. Yeah, some, some jewels or I don't know if they're jewels yeah. or a thing, but well, I mean, there's, there's all kinds of stuff, but like, I'd rather, I'd rather kind of think about that than worry about like at that point in 2018, it was like North yeah, Korea, yeah. North Korea was going to nuke us or, I mean, know. every day since 2016, there's, it's felt like the apocalypse. Yeah. Um, are you dreaming about Zelda now rather than the, <laughs> no, not really. I mean, I, I don't know if I'm dreaming about anything so much, I've yeah. been also really limiting. I don't really watch the news anymore, man. And I don't look at the mm-hmm. news on social media. I'll, I, when I actually want to find out what's going on and I want to clarify, like what I mean by that is like, I'm not listening to op-ed. I just want to know what the facts are. So, right. You're so not on Twitter looking at commentary all day long. Um, I mean, I'm on Twitter, but like I stop myself before I fall down the rabbit hole. Because Twitter just seems to be um, like you remember how like I guess I guess if we're gonna kind of rate the social media uh, political thing, which uh-huh. I'm all about doing, because I've been very vocal about the fact that people are posting like erroneous articles or things that are out of date. Yeah. Like you know how you can like look at old posts from Facebook. I've been saying that shit since 2013. So even before. <laughs> this this the era of like you know mango hitler or whatever you want to call this fucking asshole like and you know by by all means i don't care how political the talk gets on this because it unfortunately it's just part of it and uh sure. you know i don't i don't feel like it had to be i feel like that was a choice like if you know mm-hmm. people decided health was more important than politics it wouldn't be a political decision but you know that's that's, that's where we're at in his nature yeah no it's he doesn't know how not to be political. Yeah, and I'm fine. You know, it's it's fine if people don't like it. <laughs> but yeah, um, yeah. Uh, you know, so like I think so. Facebook, the the thing that I thought was really weird, and I don't know if you uh, how into the whole Cambridge Analytica thing you 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 like delved into, but it, I found it really weird and fascinating. And for a while, I stayed off Facebook for almost like half a year, and then. Mm. And then I realized that, like, uh, did you feel like notably different deep into that time, like in terms of your mental health, your anxiety, all that stuff? Could you tell? 
Well, I go on there and just kind of work on my material, man. Like I don't take <laughs> it very seriously. And so like I just go yeah. on there and make jokes and like yeah, I don't yeah. I don't always know if people are in the mood to be in that mindset. Like I think people are definitely being pulled in a direction they haven't been pulled ever. So, you know, it, it's like I made some snide remark about how, uh, you know, in 2021, people will be taking live music for granted again. And, you know, I, I guess that, you know, I don't think it pissed anybody off, but like, I definitely think that that's really the mark of normalcy the way I see it. It's not just stuff being back, but like if, if I can go to Trader Joe's and not think about, my safety then i know we've turned the corner and i know that like if people can just sort of take take anything for granted then that means we're we're at a place where things have improved and it's not so it's not really about like being like a snide asshole it's more just like i really think that's the metric it's like it's not just is stuff backing up and running it's like are you even worried about your safety at this point because if i think that's been the thing that's been so alarming about uh this time period is like now I think the only thing I can compare it to, and I've talked about this with a lot of friends from New York, but there is this thing that happens where if you're on the subway and you have to move on the subway or touch anything on the subway, it's like automatic mental note, don't touch anything near your face until <laughs> yeah. you can go wash your hands. And and I feel like we're in this thing now where you have to remember all the things you did with your hands and just not not touch your not touch your face and not touch you know so one of many habits that we have to we've never had to pay attention to you know yeah yeah. but to go back to what i was saying about um facebook i think facebook is probably the most historically has been the most toxic place for just spreading like stuff that isn't factual you know like i know i've seen obituaries for people that have died four times at this point you know i know i know and and so i think that's been troublesome but Twitter, it's weirder because you have like really smart people on Twitter. Yeah, it's really easy to see who um, who's like a bot and who isn't a lot of the time. Like it's yeah. very it's very very easy. The the signs are there, mm-hmm. but um, I think you've got smarter people on Twitter saying sure. like, saying potentially like worse things, and um, I think Twitter yeah. is actually a more it's it's a more more of a dangerous place for for that kind of stuff so it is uh, it's more it's more the bandwidth is is bigger because because of the fact that on twitter you you know it sort of revolves around following people and you, there's no obstacle to like who you can follow you can you can you know you can choose to follow experts and you know great thinkers and you know um people who really have something to say uh and I, I think among that, let's say among like news makers, taste makers, like Twitter is the it seems to be the place where they kind of download their takes. So having access to that is cool. Um, but yeah, the flip side of that is it's like a cesspool of 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 bots and trolling and um, you know I mean, but imagine like the average Facebook debate of which there are far too many nowadays. Um, if if that was peppered with expertise from someone who actually is like has a, is a stakeholder in the thing you're talking about. That's something that's true about Twitter. That's not true about Facebook. And Facebook is a bunch of amateur. I mean, maybe in terms of us, it's it's you know most of my Facebook friends are you know 
musicians. I mean, I don't know most of them personally, but they're kind of in that zone. So it's, you know, it's a bunch of people who have no expertise in like the related fields arguing about the pandemic these days or the political implications of the pandemic, you know, but like there's no voice in the discussion who's actually, you know, who I, I implicitly trust. And I, Twitter's good because you can, you can actually access like the, the thoughts of people who are involved in the shit, but you have to be pretty savvy. And that's the thing I think about is like, you're, you know, you and I, and, and, you know, maybe it's our age. I mean, it's just like our, the way we think or something. I think like we're able probably to discern like, you know, like for example, you said it's really easy to tell a bot. I'm not sure that's true for a lot of Americans. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? That level of kind of like savvy to kind of notice the 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 cues. You know, um, yeah. I've been t- I've been I've been, you know, I, I you know, there's it's it's a well documented how addict how addictive how literally addictive social media is, and I I notice that I'm uh, I'm suffering from it. Um, and uh, trying to be more disciplined about avoiding it because I think the the current situation, it's, I mean the last you know the the Trump administration is like really polarized things that were already polarized so that's obvious but I think this situation it's like you have so much extremity on one side you have people who think that this is like the opening battle of a of a deep state coup to like take away our civil rights and civil liberties. And then that's on the right. And then on the left, you have people who, who, you know, they, there's just a lot of stridency <laughs> on both sides. Like you, you, you're, you're not willing to concede maybe that there are like people that um, are uh, skeptical of the, of the government. And um, so there's, the, it's just feeding into people's biases in a way that's kind of like, pointless um and yeah. toxic you know yeah. it's just i gotta i gotta avoid it man um yeah nobody's moved by the way in their views yeah in, that's in, the thing in, you're not gonna talk anyone time. out of it right yeah. i mean it never happens i've never seen it happen yeah i i guess there was an interesting point though but during the primary season where it just seemed like half my feed was like you know f this candidate and then the other half was like that's the candidate, you know what I mean? And right. it was weird to see that in the, in the, um, in the timeline and stuff, but mm. you know, it's, it's, it's strange, man. And sometimes like I'll step in it, dude, like I'll write a post and it's like, it's it, but it's like babysitting a toddler that like, you don't really give a fuck about. It's like, man, I don't really care. I mean, I, I definitely like discourse, but I don't know that I necessarily need to have it in a comment section and I always fall into that trap when I, I want to like, you know, or something gets misconstrued, um, sure. where it's like, no, I'm saying everyone should vote regardless. I'm not saying people shouldn't vote, you know, but like sometimes, you know, like it's, it's just a weird time, you know? So I think even if it was just, uh, like, even if it was just an election year, it would still be exhausting. But now this, Plus the coronavirus, yeah, it's definitely like a recipe mm-hmm. for anxiety and and stuff that you could probably make easier by avoidance. Um, yeah, you got to start thinking like what 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 does it what impact for better or worse does your awareness of like the TikTok of the of the viral you know progression and the political ramification like all that like does that actually do anything of value for the situation? Or does it only make you crazy? 
you know, um, are you going to learn something through that process that's going to change your behavior at this point in any substantive way? Probably not. But you are probably going to feel worse every time you engage with it. Yeah. So at some point, you just have to kind of like practice a little self care and uh, assume it'll it'll you'll know the big shit when you need to. You know. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Because I I, I, yeah. Go ahead. ahead. Well, no, I'm just uh, I. I think that the the country, at least in my, I think in our lifetimes, you know, I, it would be one thing if if we had this pandemic and we were, you know, afraid for our lives and our the health of maybe not. I don't feel that at risk, but certainly my parents and people I care about. Um, that would that the uncertainty of that is troubling and is preoccupies you and 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 so that's happening like in every household in this country. Mm-hmm. So everyone's kind of dealing with trying to cope with that. But then you add to that the fact that I just read today, what was it? It was like 22 million people have applied for unemployment. Um, or 22 million jobs lost. That's what it was since the beginning, of, like for in a month. You know, so you add to like the anxiety of that, you add this like economic anxiety and... You know, then you have this election. It's like this perfect storm, this confluence of things. And in some ways, I don't know. I don't know if you, I don't really buy this as like some kind of conspiracy at all. But it does seem interesting that as the election is approaching, this crisis comes up that exposes Trump for the incompetent narcissist that he is. It, you know, it like it's it just everything's kind of coming to a head. Don't you kind of feel that way? And it's all kind of like intersecting. And while I do believe that isn't really like there's not some master plan behind that, it is kind of interesting to note that right when we most needed that slice in the middle, whoever they still are who don't know who to vote for, right. <laughs> like Trump, you know, we, we give him enough rope to hang himself with in terms of like the response to all this. So I don't know. Everyone's just freaked out by all that. Yeah. What concerns me, though, is like, I don't think it's going to result in a kumbaya moment. I think that's the that's the part that, like, I have a hard time accepting, but I've also kind of accepted without without really trying to sound cynical, um, even though I know that sounds very cynical. I just I've accepted that, like, you know, I mean, I think for I think for a lot of people, um, just the 2016 election and what that meant in terms of like dividing it's like okay you know because like that's the thing i mean people can try to say stuff like well i really care about reaching across the aisle i really don't at this point because to me it's like the whole morality of someone that would support someone like that Mm. i don't i question it and i don't feel bad questioning it and like do you feel like the the, my response to that is often I totally hear you because it's mm-hmm. like, okay, so you are continuing to support a racist, you know, whose negligence has caused unnecessary death. That doesn't seem defensible. Um, but then it's like, I try to remind myself, like, I think a lot of these people live in an information bubble where literally they're operating in a parallel reality. It's not like we have the shared set of facts. Mm-hmm. And they responded kind of in like to the evil facts and 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 they should be like chastised. I mean, some people do, and that you know, people who know better. But don't you feel like there are people who are kind of low information, you know, 
just kind of trying to get by who only watch Fox News and only listen to Rush Limbaugh all day who just don't exist in the same reality. Like, they don't know the things we know. Does that... Yeah. Yeah. So can you blame them for that? I mean, that's the one thing no. I have a hard time. Yeah. No, not not really. And and I don't think I don't think one person is better than the other. But sure. what I but what I think is is interesting though is like when it turns in. I, I mean, I think you know, there's there's also a perfect storm in the way that's set up because obviously there's no way to have that talk and have a strong opinion. And have it not be combative, and and I that's sort of the byproduct of it. Um, yeah. But but um, I think when I'm when I'm saying that I'm speaking explicitly to folks who like know better, and I mean right. quote unquote know better, and maybe they're they're leaning into it that way because of fiscal reasons or whatever. Like, because dude, there's I won't name them on here, and I can tell you off the record, but there's people that people admire and love the shit out of their music that totally voted for Trump. And it's not just Ted Nugent and no like, you know what I mean? And it's like, mm-hmm. and I think if some people knew that it would bum them the fuck out, man. And, and like, it's just some stuff I heard from someone who did a session And like, mm. when I say like mega famous, like records that everyone loves, mm. like, you know, like side musician, but like legendary uh-huh. side music. So it's like, yeah, I don't know, man. I mean, it's, I don't like to see the world divided, but I definitely feel like, mm, you know what? I, I don't, I don't feel bad that I'm not as like open to it. Like that's just the way I see it. And, and yeah, uh, it's an understandable reaction. I, I think you're not going to convince anyone. Like I, I read this article. I don't know where it was, the Atlantic or one of those, you know, yeah. lamestream media things. I, <laughs> libtard uh, publications but it was about basically the people still holding on to you know the people still supporting trump despite like absolutely glaring evidence that he's a piece of shit it's it has more to do with the psychology of being wrong of admitting you're wrong than it does anything you know obviously anything factual and I think we kind of appreciate like no we're just just like a, a slice of like human the human condition where like certain people uh, all of us really to some degree or another hate to be wrong and hate to be exposed to be wrong so they would rather hold on to this vote they made you know almost four years ago than right. uh, and publicly admit that they made a mistake you know and, yeah uh, I, I mean the thing i also want to say is like i don't for a second um disagree with anyone who feels like the sir the, the the system doesn't serve their interests you know because i think at the, at the root of it like that's not a bad motivating factor no. to uh to want that kind of thing and, and you know like that's i mean if there's anything that i i feel like i can totally see regardless of what people how people choose to proceed with that like that i think that's ultimately that's the kind of place people want to live they want to live in a place where uh they can do what they do and provide for their family and they're not, you know, their, their needs aren't, they don't feel like their needs are being ignored by the people who are in power to make things better for them. Sure. Um, so to that extent, I can't fault anybody for, for considering that. But yeah, I yeah. think, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to have an absolute view, but I think it's, it's, there's a lot of moving parts and I, I definitely think at the root of it though, I think, you know, um, 
the 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 motivation to want to see things change or get better or the 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 notion that things need to be shaken up in Washington even oh, though yeah. people people have been saying this for decades um I can't I can't say that that's a bad thing but I just no I mean, it's you know enter a con man yeah and you know there you go I mean you take a vulnerable people with like I think yeah by by and large the people that weren't racist <laughs> or yeah. You know, or just everyday racist, American racist, xenophobes. Um, yeah, the, the, being told that like, are you tired of the swamp and the elites and not paying attention to your your problems? I mean, that's a very persuasive thing. Unfortunately, yeah. it was in it was in this. You know, it was a con man. And this yeah. is the result. You know, he's. Um, but no, I think people's motives were 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 mostly pure back in the you know 2016. You know, yeah. was a chunk a chunk of them. They weren't all racist, looking to you know destroy the, the diversity and all that they just their lives sucked and this guy's coming saying that it's washington's fault i'm going to change it you know yeah pretty, pers- pretty persuasive yeah no it's weird and and i'm not i'm also not operating from the standpoint that i think liberals are perfect or even i mean that's oh, a sure. mess that's a mess too i'm not it's not um i'm not trying to make an equivalency here because that would be a false equivalency but it's also like a more, you know, I think the liberals have an internal problem as well. You know, it's like a weird, you know, the Definitely. purity, the whole thing of purity tests and all this and all that. Like I'm, I'm equally, <laughs> I'm equally uh, disgusted by a lot of the stuff I read from yeah. the left and I'm a liberal. Like, you know, I feel like um, I'm definitely, you know, I would say I'm a classic liberal, like in the 90s sense of the word. So like. I'm a little slower to jump on stuff. It's just because someone used like the wrong pronoun, even yeah. though I even though I support all the pronouns and I believe that people, you know, like I'm I'm not saying that isn't important, but I'm but saying you're not going like, to cancel someone because they're not no, up to speed. Yeah. yeah, no, I think that shit is stupid, and I think that's a horrible trend, and um, I can't fault. I I don't think that's a young thing either. Like I just I th- I see it from older folks too, so it's not sure. I wouldn't blame Generation Z or millennials or whatever. I think we're kind of on the cusp of millennial, like, like by a few years anyway. So it's like it's not younger folks. It's just the way that things have kind of manifested. Yeah, know? I hear that. I'm yeah, yeah. I think uh, all, all I, I it's not like I want to eliminate conservatism from the American political scene, and like I, I want. You know, even though I vehemently disagree with like the average conservative policy position, it's just I, I think we all agree that like we just want it to be somewhat normal. <laughs> like it's one yeah. thing that like if 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 we if if George W. Bush was in office, who I detested, um, and you know was happy to vote against, and you know I, that that's something that seems to fall within the boundaries of normalcy and like sort of still continues to honor institutions and, and you know, the things that kind of gives a sense of stability, administration, administration. So it's not that it's not, it's not that this is that there are people on the right who think differently about things. It's just that this guy's a fucking monster. You know? Right. Um, that's, that's all. Um, I'd be, I, I would be happy if there was another Republican in office, but I don't think I'd feel as, as angry and worried if, if, uh, as I do with Trump, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think the silliest thing we heard, I mean, I guess there's a few things, but I think there were, there were definitely moments in Bush's presidency that definitely I thought were 
looking back on it somewhat laughable like when tom ridge told everyone to buy like plastic wrap and duct tape oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. like that shit was fucking stupid but like i i also feel like at least the the intent behind any of that was to somehow maybe appease people and um you know i mean at least he said the right things after 9-11 like it wasn't yeah <laughs> well he had he was a I, you know as much as I, again, hate his policies, and, and he he at least had he was a functioning human yeah. with a normal, you know, he's like there are people who have like profound emotional disorders and pathologies that don't make them good at certain things, whether that's relationships or being managers or being presidents, like those pathologies, whether you're have borderline personality disorder or you're, you have narcissism or, you know, you're a psychopath, like these things should bar you from certain roles in life. Not that you should be like, you know, persecuted for them, but like you're mentally ill and Trump is mentally ill. Like George W. Bush was not mentally ill. Like he just, you know, I, I disagree with him, but, but Trump is like, has a, pathology like he's incapable of empathy you know he's a sociopath and you know so and this exposes that more than any i mean not that he hasn't exposed it a million times over but yeah after 9-11 bush i mean you know he had the normal human reaction like he had feelings about it and he was upset by it and things that normal high functioning brains do like trump doesn't have those circuits you know (laughs) he he can't feel things for other people and it's just fucking scary um so anyway Trump, Trump, Trump. It's enough of that. Yeah, yeah, no, that's cool. <laughs> we, can, <laughs> we can we can hop around. I I don't mind talking about it, man. Because no, I, I know, think, I know. I just think it's part of it. Uh, it's part of it, whether whether um, people want it to be or not, and uh, that's yeah. that's totally okay. Um, but we can pivot. So what what kind of music stuff have you been getting into? Uh, I know we were sort of talking about the whole notion of like everyone's creating content right now but mm-hmm. there's there's like definitely a sect of folks that are maybe not lost but they they haven't put their toe in the water just yet yeah yeah i uh i was yeah we were talking about how just from a kind of mental health perspective you know giving yourself permission to or just 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 appreciating that this is a very unusual and traumatic time and you're if that means that you don't feel especially motivated to nail your like live stream game um that's okay like it doesn't that isn't a failure you don't need to you know i we'll see how long this goes on um Mm -hmm. it seems like it's going to go on for a while in which case at some point you know, we'll have to learn to adapt um, and do whatever it is we need to do as individuals to kind of manage to be productive in spite of the situation. But I still feel like for now, a lot of people are just reeling and traumatized. And um, those are hard circumstances mm-hmm. in which to feel inspired and creative. So so that said, I mean, I've been, you know, I, I have been trying... Um, again I, I go through days where i just don't feel up to it i don't feel like motivated um but i've done a couple video things i have a couple like collaborative you know project like i've seen you do some of these you know split screen remote session type things um yeah i, I did one <laughs> you did one right okay yeah. 
It seemed like you did more anyway. I don't know. That's just how good it was. It felt like oh, thanks. A week's uh, worth. Um, yeah. Yeah. So so that stuff. Yeah, I've been I've been. You know, and I, I guess I've tried to look at it not so much like, oh, that's going to be my new income stream. Like, monetizing the shit is just I, I, not going to happen for most of us, you know. Um, no. I think originally, when it, when this first happened, that first week I did a, uh, I had some, when it was still okay to be around people and it wasn't like such a bad look, um, I, I had this kind of just jam, whoever was up and around uh, at my studio and, and broadcast that. And then, you know, put like my Venmo and PayPal and stuff and you know, I got a little bit of money for that. Actually, I was kind of surprised. Um, but I think those were early days <laughs> where people didn't realize like they'd have to, you know, um, that this was going to be the new thing, and and they need to re- conserve uh, their generosity. So, I think I was fortunate like to catch that first week of generosity and charitable feeling. Um, right, right. But uh, but yeah, you know, I, like I said, it's like I, I still feel. We're in this weird middle or maybe beginning of or end of the beginning phase of this where I still don't feel like I've adapted in a way that I can come up with like a workflow that makes me feel productive. Fortunately, I had a couple projects, uh, a couple mixing projects that were ongoing. And that's the kind of activity that this actually is really well suited for. <laughs> um, just hunkering down and, and working in a studio. I'm lucky to have a studio to do that in. Um, and... Uh, you know, I've been trying. I have some longer-term projects like around the studio. Like I have this console, mixing console that I've been renovating forever and kind of procrastinating on. But now I don't. I have my excuses are drying up. So yeah, you know, um, trying to stay busy, but trying to like not bl- feel ashamed when I don't feel like doing anything at all. I don't know. How about you? Well, that's that's the thing. I mean, so the collaborative stuff. I did one. I don't think it's something I want to make a habit of. I'm just not feeling it most of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm kind of that, that something. Kind of I'm sorry to interrupt. Was that something that was planned, or someone posted like a beat and then you jumped on it? Like, how did it all come together? Well, I have a friend. He's a really great um, keyboard player. Do you know? You might know him. This guy is Samu McGregor. He's Mm-mm. he's really talented. He's I think he's been playing with Virgil Donati and he's done some stuff with some other people. Like I think he did some tours with Richard Bona at one point, but um, he's in LA and and, uh, he, yeah, he was in New York for a while. Then he's out here now. He's from out here. Um, I played with him a little bit in New York and he's, he's friends with a lot of our mutual friends. So he started this thing called stuck at home records. And basically he kind of puts together bands and lineups and I, I think it's cool. I'm not, I'm not that interested in doing it that way. Like I'd rather bring my own people in, or you know, like pick people. So I he think put that the band together. For, he kind of told you who was going to be involved. You weren't. You didn't, yeah. Yeah, I got you. It was cool. I mean, that that piece, the keyboards were first, and there was a lot of changes, and I had to figure out a way to make something that sounded like it could mm-hmm. tie it together and give give some kind of a singable part. So I did the, I did the Jocko thing where I kind of manually did the uh octaves you know just to sort uh-huh. of uh, oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Sound. yeah um, that sounded really cool the double track thanks yeah. yeah so it was fun man but i'm not you know like all things 
being honest, like I'm not really into collaborating like that so much. Um, mm-hmm. I can do it, but I just don't find, I don't know, man. I'm like, I'll out myself. I'm way more of a control freak when it comes to stuff than, than I probably want people to know. So like, you know, like every now and then, like I'll get a wild hair and want to do something like I was before all this, like when Mark Letary would post some stuff where he'd have people write to it. Like I did a couple of those and they were fun, but I didn't do it every week. You know, I, I just sort right. of feel like for me, half of my enjoyment of music is just creating my own thing. And like, you know, that's probably antithetical to being a bass player sometimes, but that's just how it's been for me. So, um, well, and it's, and it's a weird kind of collaboration because it's not, it's not, I mean, it's collaboration, but it's not like you're in a studio or rehearsal room with other musicians, like bouncing ideas off each other and working out parts. And it doesn't tickle that receptor, you know, so it's collaborative in a sense, but I don't know the t- the times I've done those kind of, you know, the, those little remote projects. It's like, it doesn't feel that collaborative. It's like, Oh, here's a track. It's like, it's like playing along to a loop or something, you know, it's like, yeah, it's not this real time, like back and forth that, that kind of gives me the juice that I like about collaboration. Yeah. I think there's, it's, it's a cool way to um, maybe do a writing exercise, but sure. I don't. Yeah. I mean, and I'm not, I hope, doesn't sound like I'm hating on it because I'm not. I think it's been an awesome thing to see some of those things, but I don't find myself tuning in very much. You know, yeah. like I just I'd rather not if, <laughs> if I had a choice. I mean, I, and I know that sounds bad, but it's just not. No, it's just not the way I, I prefer to do it. Um, you know, but I'm glad that people feel well enough to be creative and that you know morale's high enough right now that people are are down to do it. But yeah, I just kind of. I've been kind of reluctant to uh, do too much of anything. Um, yeah. Because I, I, I assume there'll be time for it later. Um, yeah. This is a marathon, not a sprint. I'm, I'm learning each day. Yeah. Are you practicing a lot? Yeah. Yeah. No, I've been practicing a lot, man. Um, yeah. I don't really know for what, but just. <laughs> no, that's, just, the, that's what I think. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. I'm, I've been wanting to clean my technique up a lot over the yeah. past couple months. Like, I always have it at a general place where I feel like I can execute most things, but now it's like, you know, I want to try to work on these types of things um, articulation-wise, or I want to try to get this this sound more happening. So I've been doing some of that. I've been sort of transcribing, again, like trying to find some cool lines just to, you know, yeah. make, my, make my hands go in a different way. But I've also been, like, writing music and uh, been working on the third record so i guess that that's kind of where my head's been musically but yeah i've been enjoying playing a lot it's been mm-hmm. it's been fun just to do it and like i've been trying to like now that there's time i've been trying to transcribe bass lines i always wanted to learn how to play and same yeah it feels a little bit don't you kind of feel like it's it's in ways it feels sort of like being back in like the school time where it was sure. just sort of shedding for shedding's sake and yeah, and uh, just trying to get better because you know in real life it's like I realized you know eighty five percent of the practicing I was doing was for gigs, um, and, or just kind of maintenance chops maintenance shit, um, and that kind of hardcore shedding growth stuff was not something I was really <laughs> engaged in as much as I should. So yeah, that that part has been cool, just like hardcore shedding, um, and definitely transcribing. That's interesting you mentioned that. Like yeah, I, there's like shit that. Those lines you always heard, you know, bass or otherwise, that you're like always 
kind of lit you up. It's like, oh yeah, I should actually like learn what that is, like why that's cool. Um, I have time. Yeah. <laughs> I did that with that Zaw. I did this kind of goofy video. I don't know if you saw it of, uh, you know, on Birdland, like on the out kind of vamp, Zawinul comes in. And, yeah. um, and then on the fade, he kind of goes apeshit. I'd always like listen to that tune for that part. Um, and so I finally, yeah, learned that on bass. It's, oh, um, shit. It's I gotta, tough. I gotta oh, yeah, check, check it out. out. There's a YouTube link on my. I couldn't put it on Facebook directly because I guess there's copyright. But, um, yeah, yeah, it's like that end part is 16th, I think at like 156. So that okay. was fucking bananas. Right. Good thing I didn't have to solo it. Like on my video, <laughs> not super clean. But. Yeah, no, that's cool though, man. Yeah, yeah shit I, like that, you know, just kind of fun stuff. Yeah, I um, there's a couple things I've been meaning to like get under my fingers, um, like some Zappa stuff and mm-hmm. uh, things like that. Um, you know, there's a couple solos, but there's and then there's like a lot of grooves too that just like yeah, I've been wanting to grooves here. Um. Well, there's a couple really cool things that Marcus Miller plays on that Wayne Shorter High Life record. Um, I haven't heard that in so long. Yeah, that's a good record. There's some written lines that are like really, really well written. And right. uh, I think Wayne wrote them, actually. But Oh, Wayne wrote them for bass. I think so. I, I could definitely ask and see because my friend knows Marcus pretty well. Um, you probably know him well, too, right? Like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've hung with Marcus. Yeah, uh, He's one of my all-time, my one of my, like, top tier name drops is that i went to marcus's uh 50th birthday party <laughs> and uh that's Herbie cool. was there <laughs> yeah that was like a big one um yeah i was glad you give me an excuse to do it again uh, <laughs> right yeah that was ever tell you that story it's actually kind of a cool story it was uh it was his birthday party and, and herbie was there I ever told you this herbie hancock happy birthday story no it's, well it, it's, it's not just you listening so i know i haven't told your listeners um it was so dope. It was uh, so. It was yeah. Marcus's fiftieth birthday, at it was at Catalina's in L.A. Um, and you know they closed they closed the place and uh, private party. And Marcus's band was there. It was the band with Poogee. and um, so they did a set. Um, and then they got off, and everyone was kind of aware. I mean, there was there was it was pretty heavy. You know, especially musically heavy crowd, uh, obviously. Um, but in the back booth, you know, kind of like the honorable corner booth, there, Herbie was there, and everyone was kind of aware that Herbie was there. And uh, so when Marcus gets off and the applause kind of dies down, someone kind of starts a sort of like a Herbie chant kind of thing to get him up on stage. He hadn't played or anything. Hmm. And, you know, he did the humble, I, oh no, you know it's not about me thing, <laughs> but the, the chant gets louder. And like, so right as like, you could feel the energy and he starts, oh, he's like, okay. And he starts to walk up to the stage. He's just about to sit down at the piano. And right as he does on the other side of the club, you know how Catalina's is like the stage. And then there's like the, ba- the, the side, like that's kind of not, it's like the bar or whatever. I haven't been there in a while, but there's, yeah. a, there's a, a part of it, the room that's not like the, the kind of in the performance space. Mm-hmm. Um, so right when he sits down at the piano, the cake comes out on that side sort of and and because those people were kind of insulated from what was happening in like the performance space so they didn't realize oh maybe we got to time this differently that herbie just sat down so the cake comes out candles so people on that side start singing happy birthday marcus is over there 
and everyone's attention in the performance space kind of shifts to the happy birthday cake candle thing. And in the middle of the happy birthday, Herbie's, you know, Herbie Hancock's at a piano, probably just like every other piano in the world. They feel compelled to accompany the room. So he plays this very vanilla happy birthday accompaniment um, to the crowd singing happy birthday. And, you know, there's like five minutes of applause and Marcus thanking people. And because everyone's attention was kind of like averted to <clears throat> the happy birthday, um, I, I think for a moment people forgot Herbie was on stage alone at a piano. And uh, when, it, when the hubbub of the happy birthday dies down, everyone kind of shifts their focus back to the stage. Like, oh, fuck, Herbie Hancock's in there. So <laughs> finally, <laughs> there's, the, you know, there's, there's attention being paid. And he's sitting at the piano. Having just played like you know, the a very square happy birthday, and he, <laughs> it was it, that alone was fascinating. Just hearing Herbie Hancock is like the the house piano player. Um, but then he he so this is lull and pause. Everyone's like, okay, something cool is about to happen. And he looks down at the piano, and he plays um, the happy birthday melody again, just like one hand, you know, single note line. Da 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 da, and then. Suddenly, on like da 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 da, reharm, da da <laughs> reharm, reharm, and then that becomes the the genesis for like a ten minute, um, insane Herbie Hancock display of genius, you know. And he just needed a, 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 it was just this like display of like he just needed a seed, he just needed like something to plant in his, you know, uh, to to get like an idea from, extract, you know. Uh, something from and then why not happy birthday he just played it so that became like the genesis of this crazy thing it was like one of the cooler like the coolest displays of pure improvisation i'd i'd, I'd seen it like, didn't matter where the idea came from he just needed one and he's like fuck it happy birthday why not wow that's yeah that's so cool man yeah it was very cool it was very cool i was lucky to be there anyway yeah. marcus you learning marcus well here's something i was going to ask because you've just because of your time at bass player and just being in this business yeah as 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 one who also plays i mean you've seen a lot of stuff change maybe yeah. let's say between 2005 to the present you know just with like the way uh very much so the record business has changed and like gigs what do you think i mean it's probably like an unfair question to ask cuz cuz who can predict anything but what do you think what do you think is going to happen? Like, uh, to who? <laughs> no, I mean, just, just in terms of like, do you think, what do you think is going to happen? Like with, with the, like the gig economy or yeah. like playing or like media consumption? Like, do you think, do you think things are going to, I've been hearing a lot of interesting takes on that. That's why I wanted to ask you. Cause like, you know, one thing I've seen people say is like, well, I hope when all the gays come back, people will start demanding more money and not doing past the hat type stuff. So, you know, there's an idealism of a reset. Right. But yeah. then, you know, there's also kind of the embrace of just where we are technologically. And there's obviously cool things that people are doing like i know erica badu's been streaming concerts and you can like mm -hmm. there's like a paywall and i haven't seen one yet but i'm definitely going to try to catch something and mm -hmm. then you got on the other hand you got like people like dj premiere and the rizza doing like a dj battle yeah, which is pretty, was, pretty exciting took over the internet for a minute so what do you you know like where do you where do you see it now because i i know that like it's strange man like i remember 
I remember feeling like the download model was cool. That's about when I entered the game as far mm-hmm. as like mm-hmm. having stuff to, you know, contribute to the world, you know, and I benefited from that model for a long time or at sure. least until streaming. So, but just in terms of the whole thing, I don't know, yeah. man, like we're, we've seen so many things like shift. Yeah. Where do you, where do well, you see it? Going? I mean, it depends. My answer depends where a given individual, a given musical person fits into the the paradigm and into the the, the architecture of the music industry. I mean, if you're if you're a sideman or woman, um, I don't see the opportunity to earn a living wage increasing. You know, in terms of if 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 your bread and butter is live performance, um, that that was already a small pool and um, uh, with a ton of fish trying to get in it, and that's as difficult as ever. So uh, that's I think that's only going to be harder. It's it's an increasingly difficult space to be in. Um, so. And I think that that demands that people who maybe came up aspiring to do that, you know, in order to survive, they're going to have to expand what it is their musical lives are made of, you know. So I do think people who are naturally inclined to participate in social media and can leverage or just have a certain amount of sophistication or are willing to put the time in to learn uh, you know what it requires to build a, a, a social media audience whether it's through a podcast whether it's through their Instagram becoming you know a quote unquote influencer whether it's you know marketing some business you know around lessons or content and those people are are at an advantage um and unfortunately, the 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 creative spark that got us into music is not necessarily found in the same person that also is naturally inclined to pursue marketing themselves online. Like it's just those two things don't always coexist in people. And the people who are who are able to to do that, I think, can at least and you know they have the content to back it up. That assumes that they can play or that they can teach or that whatever it is they aspire to do. Yeah. Um those people I think can thrive in this new economy. You know, I think of people I know who we know um who because it's just in their nature to self-promote or or they're just really driven to learn about marketing, learn about, you know, all these things they're doing okay and this may not be in proportion to how good they are or how how valuable their content actually is it's just about the presentation of it which has always been the case in business that's not new um right so you know i i don't feel particularly i think the world we came up in is is has disappeared um and if you want to to make a living in music you can um learn how to swim in the pond that we're all in online um and 
um, you can. I think there is the, the one place where there is still opportunity that I've noticed and participated in to some degree and want to do more of is there still the world still needs music. It just doesn't need music that you um, are attached to by name. There's tons of uh, sync and library and catalog music being made all the time. Um, yeah. And if I had advice for a young musician, who especially one who has some compositional streak, it would be trying to um, learn about that world and make connections in that world um, and work on your sort of compositional arranging chops um, in order to participate in that world. Because that's, that's one of the few places where you can, you can still kind of flex your musicianship and your composition and, and make money. Um, I think otherwise it was bad enough going into the, what was looking to be a, a enormous recession. I mean, and it, and it's only going to get worse. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. it, this is forcing the issue for a lot of people to like, look, take a really hard look at, okay, where, do, where, where, where is money being made? Um, I mean, even on the MI side, which is something I had a lot of contact with at the magazine, you know, with the manufacturers and builders of musical stuff. Um, yeah, that's those, a good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the, the, those places, uh, some of them, I think the ones that are doing innovative work and um, especially around um, software development, digital audio development, um, whether it's plugins, whether it's modeling, whether it's a place like UA, which kind of sits on the cusp of hardware and software, like those are, the, you know, those are skills that I think you could, you could get you places. Um, but as we both know, like the days of just being a, a, a good player who expects just the fact that they're a good player to, to earn them a living is I, I, those, those, that that's been over for a while. Um, yeah, it's been know. over a long time. Yeah. Um, so, so, uh, yeah, like I said, I just think it's it's can can you take a like a good hard look at what the reality of of the world and we don't know what that reality is going to be in a year. I mean, everyone has no. an idea, speculation about it, but yeah. um, but certainly clubs will close. Certainly, there will be less. I I, I don't think that I, I mean, let's just say of a year is our time horizon. I don't think a year from now, it's going to be like it was a year ago. You know, I think it's going to take a long time. A lot of the companies, I mean, so many, the music industry is always a low margin. You know, people are barely hanging on. Like a lot of these places that we take for granted, promoters, bookers, venues, you know, this infrastructure, a lot of it's not going to survive this. Um, and who knows what it looks like on the other side. So, yeah, you know, the degree that you can be, you can become an entrepreneurial, an entrepreneurial kind of cat and figure out a way to get your slice of it, whether it's lessons or whatever content of any kind, like that's, I think that or get your like CS degree and go work at UA, you know, <laughs> or, you know, one of these plug-in waves or something. Yeah. I, I am not stifled by any of this stuff personally, mm. because I've been kind of on this, I've been reluctant to embrace it up until like maybe a couple years ago. But, um, even just kind of understanding the way it works. It's like, you know, most people like, dude, honestly, I wouldn't have a career if I didn't make my first record, you know, cause that mm. literally, that literally got me in 
even though I didn't plan it like this, like that literally got me in the game as far as like sideman work and playing with musicians I always wanted to play with. I mean, had I not done that and just right. thought to myself, okay, I can use technology and like it's affordable enough that like, you know, cause I had a, at that point, my rig for recording was like a Digio one and like right. I, had a, I had a G4. This was like the early, like 2000, like 2002 is when, when I started recording it. So it wasn't wow. this alien concept to bring a hard drive to a studio, then bring it home and work on it. So, you know, like I, and I feel like in a weird way, um, I'm not saying that like that was a, that wasn't like, groundbreaking that's just what people were doing at that time but i feel like the spirit of that i'm gonna admit like i wish i had stayed more in tune with that because you know like when i start being composition or just doing your own thing or just doing my own thing Uh and like you know kind of do the sideman stuff as it comes up but maybe think about it from the standpoint of like always keep mind the store you know um Cause I love, you know, like I love playing with people and I love doing that. But, but even like when I had that situation happen last year with guitar player guy, um, have you talked about that on your pod yet? Uh, I've, I've yeah, well I've referenced it, man. I mean, I got, they made it right with the money. So, I mean, Uh, there's not, I don't have anything negative to say. You had an unpleasant uh, side man experience. Not uncommon. Yeah, unpleasant side man experience <laughs> where the shit went belly up. And, you know, like my thing was, and this is going to sound bad, but I don't care because we could all be gone tomorrow. Like, I don't need that guy to fucking push my career at this point. Right. I've already I've already played with people who have like... a difference maker. He wasn't going to make you. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I was happy to do it. And that dude's one, he's a tremendous musician. So, um, and he's probably not a bad guy either. So I can't totally like... I'm not going to, you know, but like, I didn't need that to, you know, I've already played with enough good players. So it was more just like, I wanted to do it and have fun with the people in the band. But like, I don't know, like it, I think that's the thing is like, everyone gets to a point, I believe where maybe, you know, know, some people maybe really like floating around and their thing as a bass player is they want to play with as many different people as they can. And that's how they flourish. But for me, it's like, Nah, you know, like I, I want to play with someone for a little while, but I kind of, I don't see my life as a musician being in someone's band for like years, and like that's what's paying my bills. Like I see myself way more as a leader than someone like mm-hmm. you know that's like and and like ha- ha- making peace with that has been a painful thing because mm-hmm. you know there's been that whole like thing that happens to all of us where you know you sort of figure out like where do I fit into all this. You know, I, I can play as well as X, Y, Z. Why am I not getting yeah. X, Y, Z's calls? And I, and I feel like once people can des- deduce which parts are arbitrary and which parts are like, you know, behavioral, like, well, maybe because blah, blah, blah. Or maybe people don't think you want to do it. You know, there's always like a million reasons. But I've gotten very comfortable with what my lane is in all this. Like, finally. That's good. You know? that's good. I mean, that's probably not... That, that that's that's true about music but i'm going to a bit but as musicians as artists like the line between our art and our and our beings is pretty fuzzy sometimes so i imagine that a lot of that is just growth as a person right like confidence um being 
okay with yourself, right? I mean, doesn't that stuff all kind of come together? Um, it's not just that, that act of kind of being at peace with who you are isn't just about your music, is my point, I guess. Right. Um, it's right. It's, it's what we all kind of need to figure out how to do in life. Yeah. Um, I think it's yeah, hard. I hear that. Go ahead, man. Sorry. No, 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 no. You, uh, I agree. It is. It's. It's hard, and for some people, it's it comes easier than others, and that has something. You know, it's who knows why it's complicated. It's their childhood. It's a million influences, and I and I also think that we grew up. We're kind of a a, a the card that the hand we were dealt is particularly fraught because the world that we became infatuated with as young musicians like in school that world disappeared by the time we were done with our, our, our training and apprenticeship but you know by when we were finally hitting the world as professionals totally wanting to do the thing that we became so obsessed with and turned on by as students that was gone you know and we've had to kind of cope with that reality and i don't know if that if i was 18 or 20 now the world i grew up in would be probably similar to the one i was coming into you know um yeah yeah, and so that's that's made our, our, our path a little harder, I think. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of stuff is already, you know, we, we had seeds of that truth <clears throat> that was sort of um, around, I would say, like, maybe towards the end of the 90s. Like, I remember watching VH1 when they would have shows like Behind the Music, mm. and, and then, like, uh, yeah, like, it was, like, Behind the Music. So they had one on, like, TLC, and so that sort of broke down how you could be a band with lots of hits Right. And and then like not make that much money off of it. But then <laughs> yeah. I remember watching the one about the band Warrant, and uh, huh? I remember they one of the guitar players. He's like in computers. Like he does like I don't know if he's a coder or a programmer, but this was in like the late nineties. But he's like, yeah, you know, I have this day gig, and this is what I make my money from. It's not mm. from. And I was like, while they were not not while they were in the band. Oh, this is like. Not when they were hitting it big. This is what he did. No, later. like in the wake of it, like it's after not Cherry Pie days. This is no, no, like yeah. when grunge took over and right, right, know, right. Like Cherry Pie was sort of a. Uh, I mean, that whole story actually is very tragic. Um, I don't know. Like that sure. whole thing. Like I don't. You know, I, I, it's. I'm paraphrasing what I, what I've heard about it, but they had a whole record done, and that song wasn't part of it. And the label told them they didn't hear any hits, so he wrote that song and. You know, they had a much more artistic thing that they were trying to do. Because that guy was actually a pretty good songwriter, but, you know, they, they wanted some kind of stupid, kitschy right. hit. So he gave them that. And, you know, I that think became that became their, what they're known for. Yeah, that became the flag <laughs> that, 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 you know, and it sucks because I don't really think that was what, you know, their intent was. Um, there was another hit they had, right? Uh, probably a few. Evan. Yeah. Yep. Anyway, yeah the power ballad thing that's that's a whole other oh, thing dude. but but um anyway yeah so just the idea that like i thought it was cool that like someone pulled the curtain back and was like yeah i i have a regular job and right i was in a band that was really famous for some time and right yeah, mean i'm frying private for the rest of my life and yeah no. And I think that's so common, man. I, and I feel like, you know, you see people sort of try to conceal it, but I just don't think that's reality for most people. Well, know? I think it, but yeah, that, that totally. And you're right that I, as we 
yeah, late nineties, there was more uh, insight into the curtain with the was peeled back more often because like MTV VH1, you're right about that. And also, but I think the double-edged sword for, for us or people maybe with similar aspirations initially was also, we were, I mean, the people I, I can say for myself, like there were the bands I worshipped and there were the, you know, as a bass player, there were the session musicians I wanted to be like, you know, there was, and it was both of those things, (laughs) you know, Either it was like the the false you know uh, fantasy that was the like making it in a band, um, which I began to be disabused of that possibility. And it was <laughs> how did that happen? Like, what was what were the bands that you worshipped, and then like what was the thing that kind of sobered you up on that whole that whole pursuit? Um, one of the my early formative experiences was this is when I was still in LA. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went to USC for college, and then after college, I went to uh, what was then called LAMA, which was Los Angeles Music Academy. At the time, it was seen, I think, kind of as like the somewhat like more serious alternative to MI. Um, and I mean, that's a whole long story how I got to that point. But basically, I, I did like six months at this, you know in this program that was like very, very focused on bass, which was new. I play, I studied music at, in college, but it was not as like, just all about bass. Um, that's where I met like Jerry Watts was there and stuff at the time. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, yeah. Jerry's awesome. Yeah. Jerry's dope. Um, so yeah, so I'm like 21 getting out of that school, which, you know, it was like, like kind of like, am I, it's like a vocational music school. It's like, all right, people coming out of this are going to go, you know, make it in LA kind of thing. And um, among the connections I made there, and I think this is still a thing. Is, is, so is Barry Squire still, do you know Barry Squire? Do you know who he, yeah, like yeah. He put together, put yeah. together bands. Yeah. So yeah. I, I've heard I, through other conversations that's still happening, but he, he was like the, the, the dude or one of them that if a pop artist, anyone, any artist needed to put a band together, he had this massive like Rolodex of, of people. And a lot of them were kind of like young and, and hungry and willing to, you know, to take it in, you know, in order to, (laughs) to get ahead. So I was, I kind of made it into his Rolodex and, um, I was asked to audition for 30 seconds to Mars. Um, Oh, wow. Yeah. And that, that was a very sobering look at how the sausage gets made. Um, <laughs> that almost like kind of is why I, I mean, it's not why I left LA, but it had something to do with it. Um, Cause basically it was just clear. I, you know, I thought, especially it's hard for people now, especially younger people to realize how much less informed we were back in like 2000 2001 like there just wasn't you couldn't go deep dive on every topic you could think of back then yeah um, you kind of and maybe that had something to also just to do with my nature like I, I i think i had a relatively still at that point idealistic vision of what it meant to to you know be in bands and um and then when i got that call it's like i had to learn i remember i, I you know so i got i remember i got a, a cd mailed to me 
that were like the the stuff that I had to learn. There were some demos on it, so they hadn't done anything yet. There was no record or anything. Um, okay, this is Jared Leto's band, right? Jared Leto's band, yeah. Okay, and his, yeah. And his, and his brother. Okay. Uh, and uh, but I did. They did tell me that part, and I was like, "Well, this has got to be a thing, man. That guy's famous." At that time, he was only famous. I think uh, for uh, Requiem for a Dream had come out, and then oh. of course my so-called life. So he was a celebrity, and he had the t- he was like in the tabloids a lot. Um, you know, he's dating. I think he was, he was definitely dating Cameron Diaz uh, at the time. So you know, he was a celebrity. So I was like, "Well, this is a thing. I got to really fucking yeah. How can you lose with that? With all that? Yeah." So I was like, <laughs> "All right." So they I got the demo, and in addition to the demo tunes, which were like you know, very middling new, whatever you call that stuff. I don't even know what to call it stuff. It's not new metal exactly. It's kind of like post-grunge, whatever. Oh, okay. I don't know what to call that band. Um, that's fine by me. But uh, <laughs> they, uh, so I learned the songs and, um, but then I remember additionally, they wanted me to learn Tom Sawyer, um, which I had never like actually sat and learned. Um, oh, that's cool. Yeah, that was cool. And I was like, oh, that'd be fun. And I, you know, I was like fresh out of music school. So I was like, all had my fucking transcription game on. So I got really detailed, learned every lyric and you know, definitely like I was never a rush guy. So that was kind of like my big rush intro, um, in terms of like the detail orientation of it. Were you a rush guy after that? Or somewhat, I never went like, I still haven't done like a deep dives, but yeah, it made me appreciate how detailed it was. Um, how like methodical their arrangements were um so anyway i learn all this shit i put all this fucking time i worry about what i'm gonna wear the whole thing you know i'm like i'm, I'm now like kind of investing this opportunity with like the few like it's the fork in my, my the road of my life right um and i go so i go to jared leto's house uh in hollywood um, somewhere. I don't know if it was like his main house or like his like <laughs> flop house. I don't know how that worked. Um, and <laughs> but yeah, like this kind of. I guess the reason I say that is because it wasn't as impressive as I would expect a person. But maybe that was in itself. Maybe that was his house, and that exposes that side of the entertainment industry. Um, right. But anyway, I go there. He's not very friendly. Which whatever, fine. Um, he takes me in the back and there is a like kind of like rehearsal setup in like this detached garage. Um, they put, it was very modest. It was like classic, like carpet up and like some like Zeppelin posters or something. And I meet him and his brother and um, <laughs> I guess I don't care about telling the story, but basically I learned all this stuff and when I get into the rehearsal, the audition or whatever it was, it was just the three of us. There was no like, ma- like minders there or anything. I was like, all right, you know, like all gung ho, ready to go, bass all out and tuned. And he's like, I'm like, oh, which one do you want to do first? He's like, oh no, we're not going to do any of that. I'm going to teach you uh, a song we're working on. I'm like, okay, well, you know, I learned Tom Sawyer and shit. Can we do that? You know, but but so he starts teaching me the tunes, and what I realized in that moment was he really could not play guitar. He, <laughs> like, when I say he couldn't play guitar, I'm not like, oh, he was like, all right. No, like, he couldn't play. So he uh, had, he tuned the cu- guitar. I assume most people listening will understand what this means. Like, so he tuned the guitar to, like, an open E, right? So it was, like, an open tuning. Mm-hmm. And he would just bar with his first finger. That was his guitar playing. 
Jesus. And the way he described the songs to me were by dots. So he's like, all right, this one is like no dots. Then you go to the second dot, then no dots again. Then you go up to the third dot, then no dot. Like that was the language. And I was like, wow, that's how this works? <laughs> like you can literally <laughs> know nothing? And then I just didn't realize, you know, I assumed with all the, like the, the push that they, he was getting and all the attention, like that, that he must have something and there was nothing there. And, um, you know, obviously I didn't get it. I remember Cameron Diaz showed up, um, as I was leaving, which was like, whoa. Um, I remember wow. his dog, his dog peed on my gig bag. I remember that. Oh, that um, sucks. Yeah. So I don't know. At, when I left that, I was just like, it was just one of those like reality check things. Like, and then of course seeing that that band, because the machine was behind him, because he was a celebrity, you know, despite the, maybe the quality of the content, got big, got famous, has huge fans, does international tours, like all the whole thing. And then that that was really what it was about, and it wasn't about, at least, and for for you know, and not not that that's like that's like duh, yeah, like pop is not about the the music. I get that, but like that was my personal brush with it. And it's particularly like the LA kind of side to it. Yeah. You know? um, I think it's the, lame, dude. I <laughs> yeah, it's super lame. And the look, I remember the reason I got a call later why I didn't get it. And a lot of it had to do with the way it looked. Um, wow. Because they, they wanted like ink and, you know, it's like 2001. Oh, yeah. You were um, like one neck tattoo away from. I was like one neck tattoo. Yeah, like one gauged earlobe away from getting yeah. it. Yeah. Dude, that shit is lame. I mean, I I live in oh, LA yeah. and I've been here for three years, and like I don't give a fuck about the entertainment business, That's you know. Cool. And I think I moved out here not to be close to that. Um, mm. I don't really know what brought me out here now because I've kind of realized there's very f- small elements of this shit I'm actually interested in. But but you know, what partly I mean. just to get out of New York. Yeah, it was partly to get out of New York. I didn't see a future there, man. Um, right. But it's new. Yeah, I, I actually really like it out here. Um, you know, I, I feel like it's as good as place as any to uh, have a home base. There's certainly plenty of at this point. I mean, I don't know how it must have been in 2001, but there's a lot of creative music being made out here now. And uh, I feel very inspired by that. I don't feel like a lot of that stuff is rooted in the entertainment business. I mean, I know there's like tours and stuff, but like, I don't care about that shit. You know, like personally, yeah. I don't. It like, feels I'm, to me sometimes like people move to LA because, you know, by and large, they know it's where the industry is. It's where the opportunity is. And then sort of in spite of that, they start being creative because they're just creative people. But the yeah. things they're doing aren't kind of within the the machine um, yeah. you know, so much, you know? Yeah, I mean, I don't really know how much of the machine is accessible, you know, because it's like, and like, I, I think if if people are kind of just doing what they do, they have a better shot of making something happen than like, you know, like, because I'm not going to get a gig playing in a Disney thing at this point, man. I'm like 44, dude. And like, <laughs> I, you know, and I don't want that gig, you know, I wouldn't want to do that shit anyway. So it, it works out fine. But, um... Yeah, there's no there's no gig right now. I would, I mean, pandemic or not, there's not an ultimate gig. Like, there's people who I definitely want to play with, but sure. I don't I don't have a dartboard anymore with like who's again. Like, I don't care. Like, it's more just you know. So what what are your 
do you are you a person that kind of needs to have like a goal or a set of goals in order to kind of like structure your efforts or is it just kind of like ad-libbing day to day um i think just just because you know uh between playing and then having like teaching income and like a diverse stream of of different things that sort of like keep the lights on i've been trying to look at people who have really been doing that for a long time and and like try to like adapt more of that but who's, who's uh, killing who's killing it to, to you oh man well i mean scott divine i'm not trying to do the same kind of thing but just someone that found a lane that works um you know yannick's doing really well man and yeah. and that's somebody and i don't want you know i don't i don't know him super well it's always been cool when we talk and stuff but um it just seems like he kind of does what he does and he's not too worried about falling into things that don't suit him you know he's very he's yeah he's very, kind of at peace with himself yeah i know him pretty well um yeah i would say that's the yeah that's a good observation he's just kind of he's cool with his lane and, yeah. and kind of defining for himself what that lane is and he's also just got an insane work ethic yeah um, and you know his success is what what happens when you know who you are and you work hard to, to at it <laughs> it's not yeah. that complicated yeah no i think that definitely takes a lot of the guesswork out of it yeah, i right. think just any you know and so there's there's other people that sort of do that thing also um in in various ways but i think that's that's kind of like the the thing i would so, put i would put more magical thinking in that direction than like oh man i hope i get this thing i hope that, new york calls me or yeah i mean it's not and I, it's not that i wouldn't want to play with those people but i just don't i don't have those dreams anymore like i i don't feel any less connected to being really ambitious but i just realized like the stuff I'm, I'm ambitious about has nothing to do with like um you know one of those people calling me but i'm saying that as someone who's gotten to play with like arguably some of the best musicians on earth in some in some cases or at least some of For the sure. coolest musicians on earth so yeah. i mean i'm not you know it's not there's no sour grapes there it's just you know i think you everyone gets to see it at some point like you play with someone that maybe as a hero and if you're lucky they're really cool and you you get set on a path like uh mm. you know like fuse was like that for me man like i just talked to him a couple weeks ago and we haven't played music together in like 10 years but that dude always makes me think about like the intent of what your art is and stuff and mm. it wasn't always the easiest thing to kind of experience that in his band but i was also younger and like right. you know you don't want someone telling you everything but a lot of what he thinks about and a lot of the kinds of things he goes for even though I, I can't say that i love microtonal stuff all the time like i have a lot of respect for people that are driven by just the need to like follow the artistic things that um that that are inspiring to them and so i don't yeah. know so so i'm not i'm not saying that from like uh you know i'm i'm like frustrated it's more just like you know you can you can kind of see what it's like to play with people and i th i think by and large like i i think as a bass player I'm, I'm definitely at my best if i'm not just doing my own stuff so i do like playing stuff that makes me think about music differently but i also oh. you know it's kind of a weird balance that i feel the most comfortable at but mm -hmm. but like if someone said hey there's if there's a gig 
you know, is there like some kind of dream gig that you haven't done yet? Uh, not really. I mean, there's just stuff that I want to do. Like, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't even have to think that hard about it. Like if, if just somebody called and I was like, I like what that person does. doesn't even have to matter. Like I'd, I'd probably be into it. Um, it's, it's like really kind of cut and dry, but I'm not, you know, I'm, there's nobody I'm like trying to, like I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to Tanya Harding anybody, man, or you know, like to get yeah. on some gig, dude. Like I don't see it like that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's smart. It's not not suggesting that this was like a strategic thing, but it's important to get to the point in life where you don't feel like the thing that like your dream, your dreams are it's modulating your dream, your dreams so that they're achievable because if you live in a constant state of, of of inadequacy because you've set your your dream is so you know it's it's i want to be in herbie's band or whatever you know and it, and if short of that you're not going to feel like you've accomplished anything or you're you're going to feel like a failure um that's a kind of recipe for misery you know so yeah. Being at peace with like where you're at, what the reality of the industry is and the opportunities are, and finding a lane through that that is inspiring and creatively stimulating. Like that really, it should be like where people's <laughs> work goes. It's figure, if they don't feel like they have that, it's like figuring out what is that thing. Um, and right. it's not like you you wouldn't be stoked if you got some major label gig or whatever that thing might be or you played with your hero. It's just that if that doesn't happen, you're not going to feel like you failed. Yeah. Well, I think also as, as you, you've seen with your own experiences and, and just in general, like a lot of this stuff doesn't, doesn't last for forever, you know, like oh. unless, unless you're in a band that manages to write a song that's never going to leave the radio for decades. Right. And um, I only know one person that's in that category, really, you know, um, like, uh, Vernon, you know, like cult oh, yeah. is cult has never not been on the radio since so it true. was a hit. Um, but like, you know, um, short of that, I, I think, you know, the band, I think if you, I think most bands, I mean, this is a theory I've had, but most bands that are really successful, they have a five year reign and that's it. Yeah. And it, and, and having your sort of attitude about that in, in order so that you're prepared for when that ends. I mean, I, I, yeah, I've had moments my own career where I got a little taste of that. I played for a while. I toured with this guy, Miguel Miggs, who's huge in the house music world, deep house world. So, you know, the gigs were big and the, and, and pretty cush. And, right. um, and then that ended and, you know, you get used to it, you know, especially I was younger then and, you know, it was early days. So I was like, okay, oh, this is, this all makes sense. This is kind of like, you know, phase five of my career, you know, this is all going to build and it's all going to, from here, I'll go on the next bigger thing, you know, understanding that that's that's actually not the case and it oscillates and then i got in this band cathedrals which had a moment and had a couple minor hits and so we got you know some nice gigs and attention and then that stopped happening i mean the, just learning how to like weather the realities of the business emotionally psychologically is so important <laughs> yeah know, that that year on the road of just living the life is is going to end and you got to be ready for what you do on the other side of it Oh yeah, like at some point you're gonna take out your own garbage again. You're gonna make your own bed again. You're yep. gonna have to like you're gonna have to like be a human being. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Um, what would you say? Like, I mean, you know, like as far as playing bass, 
would you say that like when did when would you say that like uh you got more of a broader sense of music like was it when you got into like production stuff or like because i know you also do synth bass too like what Mm -hmm. did you i mean like because i always find that's an interesting evolution for people when it's like you can tell people are sort of like maybe not the ground floor but the first couple floors in the building you know everyone's just kind of focusing on the instrument but then it's like you get more into other stuff like at what point did that start to happen for you um Um, i mean definitely i was i think i had an unusual or atypical path because of my work at the magazine um Mm. so i got the job as an editor at bass player i was the technical editor at the time in 2002 so i was 23 um so still very early in my you know like serious phase of, of 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 being a bass player um and by virtue of that i instantly became exposed to the kind of you know, to the degree there is such a thing, like the kind of the inner sanctum <laughs> of the bass world, especially at that time, the magazine was, it, it wasn't like it is now where, um, you know, the, the internet is really where the bulk of the, of the, of the content is happening. It was really the, the center of the bass world. And um, so that was, that was so formative. I mean, just the insight I, I, I suddenly had into how the sausage gets made as far as um, these these people that who prior to that that opportunity were just heroes and icons and untouchable like Ivory Tower realizing that no like these are people they're they're, they're actually <laughs> you know in many cases sadly still struggling um, to, to make a living and and um, still hustling you know despite having played on all these amazing things um, just yeah. being able to interact with and talk to those people, um, which I guess isn't really answering question because you're talking more about like the music side of it. But but um, but yeah. But also being there, I had to cover and become aware of and become expert, somewhat expert on the whole breadth of what it meant to be a bass player. Whereas prior, I was really the things I I personally liked were the things I I pursued, and that's also kind of typical of maybe being young. Um, I was mm. being exposed to. Um, you know, just styles and 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 approaches to the instrument that you know I was I was checking out Lemmy and I was checking out Lee Rocker and I was all these cats that like I hadn't really personally you know pursued. Um, so that was a big part of it. And then being able as as time went on, talking to uh, be talking to them and becoming friendly with them or spending weekends at camps with them or whatever. You know, just um. That was big. And then definitely when I got that gig, I talked about uh, this guy, Miguel Miggs. Um, He, at the time, this is like 07, he had already made a big name for himself um, kind of as an innovator in in, uh, what's kind of known as Deep House, which is, you know, electronic music has all these genres and subgenres, just like metal or whatever. It's like music in general. But Deep Mm, House is kind of like... like, um, the sort of soulful, more organic side of house music. Um, so there's just a lot of like Fender Rhodes and and real bass and stuff like that. Um, but it's still four on the floor. It's still danceable. Um, and he had made himself as a producer and and then DJ in that world. But he had always wanted to be a musician. I mean, he would play guitar and stuff. And he always wanted to like do the live band thing again. So he put together like a live band 
um, it was me, John Mater. You, you might know John Mater, the drummer. Um, oh yeah, yeah, I met yeah. him a couple times. He's great. Yeah, he's dope. Um, so Jude Gold played guitar in that band. Um, and that was the first gig I had where I had to play key bass, and that was dope. Like that really broadened my whole sense of the instrument because. You know, I'd always, I hadn't, I, I just wasn't listening to a ton of music where that was like a big part of the sound prior to that. Yeah. I mean, definitely huge Stevie guy, huge Parliament, all the Bernie stuff, and, you know, the occasional, you know, Michael Jackson tune with Greg Philogains on it or whatever. Like, I was aware of key bass, but I hadn't really ever pursued it. But then when I felt like, okay, I have this gig, I got to learn about this, I, I, that really turned me on um, to that side of things. And the realizing I could, I could, I could kind of get my bass rocks off in a different way and in a way that was had a certain power and just, I don't know, massiveness that bass guitar doesn't really have, <laughs> you know, like there's nothing like playing a low, you know, sine wave on a big stage with subs. Like you can't make that kind of sound on bass guitar. It's just, and it just infinite sustain and um, just in terms of like booty rock. Right. So, um, that kind of got me into that, the synth thing. And then that kind of like, it's a kind of not such a huge leap from that into sound, sound design, which kind of gets you into production and thinking more about records. And then it's also just, you know, when you've played one instrument as seriously as I think you and I have, there comes a point where it's like, you know what you need to do to get better. Like, you know what you're good at and you know what you need to work on. Like it, it, the, the path to improvement becomes clear to you. It's not like there's going to be some new piece of information that you've never been exposed to. That's going to like a light bulb's going to go off. Not that doesn't happen that much as you get deeper into it. Um, mm -hmm. So I think it was good for me to like take on new musical challenges where I had to kind of feel like a beginner again. Um, I think that that, in, in, insisting that, that that my life periodically, and it's just my nature, like that I investigate new things and put myself into that like neophyte place. And that was true when I first got into synth. That was true when I first got into production and, and, and record engineering and mixing. Like all those things have kept like the f pilot light lit for me as far as needing to find new challenges because base is like that's always going to be there and and i, I you know, but i'm really aware of how that path looks for me and these things were like whole new sets of of people to check out and information to assimilate and and skills to learn and, and that's kind of kept it kept it fresh for me how about you uh i would say writing writing uh -huh. and composition probably is the thing that has done more for my playing um as far as stuff that that just happens from like a like a solitary standpoint you know um yeah. because or even just like working on remote sessions for people where maybe it's the kind of thing where uh because you're sort of left unsupervised to just make something based on the criteria that you're given um you have to like think about you just have to kind of like blindly take a stab at it and see how close you can get to somebody's vision you know and so mm. i mean i feel like things like that have, but i i think composition and just thinking about um different ways to approach 
making an idea, a musical idea work, um, where sometimes like, like there's definitely, um, things I've, I've written or worked on where the baseline started out crazier than it actually ended up. And, uh, all the edits and, and refinements were for the better. And right. it, it got me to think about, um, got me to think about like the types of things I would play in a given situation and even the types of sonic things decision wise I would make about stuff mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. that like if I was just thinking about the bass and it was more like my whole soul relationship to this music is this one thing that I do with it, which is play this particular instrument. I think composition got me out of that, you know? So if I ever feel like I'm, you know, I definitely like to play a lot and stuff, but um, I think having a bigger view of stuff yeah, as even working on my own music got me to really appreciate it in other people's music. Um, sure. You know, and I think like just from, from a standpoint of uh, there's so much stuff to check out and listen to. Um, there's a way in which you can, I think getting there just from my own experience got me to like really appreciate how other people approach that stuff in, in just ways I never really thought about um, actively before, you know, like I always knew I liked how the bass playing sounded like on, on Prince records, or I always knew that what Tony Levin did with Peter Gabriel was awesome, but I never really thought about like, well, at what point does he change a part? At what point does he try to make himself heard? Like, Mm. you know, I I just never really thought about it. And, and just from like, uh, from a standpoint of, of, balance and um where to like where to like be be audible and where to sort of like lay back i mean that's that's definitely like a that's definitely like less tangible uh skills as far as like how how one develops that but i feel like that's helped me as a direct contrast to just being able to have lots of facility you know like because because honestly like that's that's definitely something like um, I feel like always is trying to, I'm always trying to mitigate it. You know, yeah, like I was going to ask, do you think that gets you in trouble a little bit just because the, the ability of the, the virtuosity, the ability to pull shit off? Um, yeah, I think or, it does. Or did, or did historically. Yeah. I mean, I think it definitely, it's gotten me in trouble before. Um, I don't mm-hmm. think, I mean, I think the, the, the one saving grace I think I've had is that, I've always really liked playing grooves, so I always paid attention to it. You know, like I always paid attention to like where my feel was, and and I always liked beats and stuff like that. So when people started messing around with like their placement, I it was definitely something that wasn't lost on me because I was trying to like play fast stuff. You know, uh, like if I had a solo or something, like I always I always thought it was interesting to hear people. Um, you know, like even even before like uh, Jay Dilla um, became sort of like a widely sourced inspiration for for this type of thing, but just hearing you know like okay, this drummer's laying it back here. Like I, I got into it because I really like the amount of of uh, power and control like the drummer and the bass player can have over over all that stuff. You know, because it's such a weird thing the way that stuff works so i guess i've always had like two sets of interest but um no i got lucky too man because the when i was really i would say in the prime um 
space violation years of my playing, um, the drummers I played with were really nice. And <laughs> they could have yeah. been really harsh to me, and they weren't. You know, right. like one one dude, I'll tell this story because um, I don't think I've I've ever talked about this. Um, but I had this gig in Washington D.C. when I was 22, and it was a pretty great gig to have, like as a 22 year old or otherwise. Like it was a it was a bass chair that had been occupied at one time by Gary Granger and Scott Ambush and then this other great bass player who was who was in DC named Steve Taylor and all kinds of great people would sub in on it like Dave Dyson did it sometimes and mm. um there's like a really great keyboard player named Benji Parecki and this guy named Mike Alt who's like a really great guitar player and then this drummer named Darren Blessman and Darren's fantastic he was he played with Scott Ambush at Bass Bash this year um, oh, I and, that. Okay, yeah, and he's been playing with Scott in this band. He still does it, but um, what's the band? I was, uh, it was just with this really great singer named Marianne Redmond, who okay. she's got like as good a voice as anybody. Um, she just kind of kept it local in in DC. Like she's she's done some stuff and she's written some songs. Like she, I think she wrote one. I forget the name of the song, but she wrote something that Celine Dion recorded. And so I know she's made some money from that. And she's you know she's she's been yeah. she's had a pretty good career. Um, but the band was great. And uh -huh. here I am, 22 years old. I was listening to a lot of fusion and like Aquarium Rescue Unit and. Uh, sure. I think my reference point for playing in a band that had good players was like, definitely play shit in between the cracks because that's what people want to hear. <laughs> right. And exactly. um, <laughs> yeah. so um, I guess you know, like I I kind of took over uh, when when like the the bass player before me he left, and uh, it had been a couple months, and we had this weekly gig at this place right downtown in dc this this club was called city blues and it's it was maybe like a block or two from where the where the national zoo is on connecticut avenue and okay. um i you know i was i got to gigs early when i was 22 because i really cared about like you know getting there like an hour before and now now it's more like if i can get there a half hour before it's cool but you know i was really really committed and sure. so i so i get there and then darren got there and set up his drums and uh he like asked me this question. He was like, "Hey man, um, who are your favorite bass players?" <laughs> uh -huh. <laughs> and and I answered him. I think I said like O'Teal, sure, and Marcus Miller, and uh, I might have said Gary Willis. And, All kind of uh, like shredders, fusion types. shredders. Yeah. Um, but. All those guys can definitely groove and and put no it doubt. down. And no and so Darren was like. Okay, he's like, so let me ask you this. I was like, okay. He's like, how would those guys play this gig? Like, what would mm. they play on it? This and before you guys played, or he had heard you play already? This is this is I've been doing this gig for a while. Oh, okay. So I think this is his. So essentially, it's I a got way to kind of start a conversation with you. Yeah, that needed to happen. I see. Yep. Okay. So I was I was kind of getting spanked, but he wasn't mean about it. He wasn't right. like the kind of guy to yell at somebody on the bandstand. Right. Um. So he, you know, like he said that to me mm -hmm. and I got it. Like I just understood immediately what he was saying. And somehow mm. I was able, I mean, it, it didn't happen on that gig, but I definitely was able to refine my approach and start to understand, 
you know, there's there's rules here, and you have to like somehow. What? Is, what go ahead. Sorry. You have to sort of adhere to these rules. Like she used to let us take solos, so I got a few solos per set. Like it wasn't, it wasn't the m- most conservative gig in that respect. Sure. But but um, I was definitely like you know that scene in um Jackie Brown where Sam L. Jackson's like you talk he's like AK forty seven you know right every like, time if you want to kill every motherfucker in the room like that's kind of what my solo sounded like dude it, <laughs> at that point like you know like I had yeah. some re- some traces of phrasing and stuff but it was very much like let's machine gun everybody oh, yeah. and um you know were, but were there cats you checked out like so you got the message you're like okay I got I got to uh, I got to approach this differently did you did that cause you to go check out other players or how did that how did you develop that um well just knowing you needed to be more careful was enough knowing i needed to be more careful but then also um listening to the recorded output that she had and just trying to like figure out why it worked and then listening to other stuff where Mm. there's clearly people who have the ability to play more that don't i think that became something that um that became something that that definitely resonated with me but i wouldn't say that was the most honest point in my development as as a musician like i think i was still really trying to play like the stuff that impressed me and so um that would continue for a little while man and then you know when i finished my stuff at berkeley like i was playing a lot of wedding gigs and Mm -hmm. uh there was this dude who was on drums and he was a tremendous drummer and I, I'm not speaking about him. Like, I think he's still alive and shit, but um, he, he had played with some, some people like he was in Mark Wahlberg's band when the funky bunch was like a thing. Like, mm-hmm. like um, so we would, you know, we would have to play these like showcases in clubs in Boston and they were yes. sort of fun gigs and they paid. Okay. Like it wasn't, wasn't a, like a, a hard gig to do and it was yeah. fun. Um, and way looser than say like a wedding gig because you're just at a club and you can drink and stuff. Um, this guy would drink, and mm. I remember like the first time he sort of subbed in because there was like an agency with different bands and stuff. He mm. subbed in and he like he rode my ass the entire gig, and it wasn't my playing. He was like, dude, he's like, this isn't Weather Report. You got to put more bass in your sound, man. You got to like <laughs> play both pickups, and it pissed me off. But he was right. He was so right, dude. And it was like this weird sort of, I didn't want to hear it. It definitely, I definitely didn't want to hear it. But the more, the more I played that stuff, I kind of just was like, you know what? There's joy in these parts. And, uh, totally. I'm just trying to make this stuff be what it is. And, um, I don't know. It was sort of, initially I just wanted him to leave me alone. So like (laughs) (laughs) I would, I like dialed in, you know, like I put everything, it wasn't like I had the most shrill sound either, but it was like, what, what acts were you playing at that time? Um, I had a couple, like my rig at that time was like a Bergantino 322, which somebody has now because it got stolen out of my car. Like when I moved to Brooklyn. (laughs) And then I had a Walter Woods, ultra high powered amp so not the warmest sounding rig just just powerful but i had a jazz bass and then i had a lakeland 5502 and then i had a modulus and i probably Mm. was playing the modulus because Mm. 
Yeah. You know, and and um, I think if you use that bass in conjunction with like a tube amp, the experience is different. But this was like all hi-fi, all bright, all yeah, edgy, yeah, glass, man, yeah, just pure glass. So um, partly, it's like what I mean, you know, it's not only your willingness to get the right tones. It's just, it's just you're young, and it, not everyone knows how to get those tones. Like you hear. You know, some and maybe now people have more information. You know, you can go online and there's a million threads on Talkbase about how to sound like Jamerson or how to sound like Marcus. But at the time, it wasn't like obvious. You know, like how do I get that to sound that, that way? At least I kind of remember those days. Yeah, man. I mean, it's it's like kind of learning curve type stuff. And I guess the thing is, to a certain extent, a lot of the other people on those gigs when I was doing them, I guess one thing that was cool is like it was other people who were students. So, or not right. students, but just everyone was kind of starting their career. And so like, I don't know if you know who Russland is, uh, yeah. Russland Sirota, like Russland was doing a bunch of these gigs. And, um, a lot of the keyboard players who did these types of gigs were working on their dual keyboard chops, like how to have like your utility sounds and like your other sounds. And, mm. um, so everyone was kind of figuring it out, but, um, sure. You know, he, I think that you know that those were two things that really helped me kind of put it together and then mm -hmm. you know then just kind of realizing the kind of bass playing that was actually going on on the stuff that I liked listening to which really wasn't as noty as like the stuff I thought should be there you know right. and so so it kind of became like a weird musical about face it wasn't even about like it wasn't even about like being threatened with not working or whatever. It was just sort of realizing like the bigger part of it. Right. And, uh, it's being okay cool to, yeah. Being cool with it. Exactly. Yeah. I think yeah. that, I mean, if I had advice for anyone that was struggling with this, it would, and, and they're, they have the opportunity cause there's so much value and, you know, at some point in your career, like doing the wedding band thing or doing the corporate function band thing. Um, it would be, if you're going to do that gig, like think of it as an opportunity to learn how to sound and play like all of these amazing, you know, whether it's Verdine or Jamerson or Peter Cetera, whatever the shit your repertoire is in your corporate band. Like I, you see so many of those, like especially bass players who like they're, they're just not copying the tone, the feel, the vibe of the original part, you know? And I think, it's a missed opportunity to like learn how to sound like that or learn how to play like that. You know, um, you have like 25 cover tunes you got to learn, like try to cop all those sounds the best you can, you know, use it as a learning opportunity, not just trying to get by or, and get into the details of it. Yeah. You know, um, that's what I did. I mean, there's definitely songs I would never choose to play Yeah, from those gigs. And Heck it's yeah. just like, you know, I think there's a discipline. Like, you know, I, I don't like ABBA, and I hated playing Dancing Queen. I hated mm -hmm. it every time we played it. But, you know, I remember one time. Kind of a cool little part, though, if I remember. I'm trying to remember the. Yeah. Part. Yeah. It wasn't bad. I remember one time thinking double stops might sound good on it. I didn't actually play them, but <laughs> I remember feeling like this song doesn't need anything but the part that was recorded for it. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's there's a there's a discipline there mm -hmm. that I think I think just it's good to have. I don't think people need to live in that world forever because yeah. um you know, it's it's definitely something you'll hit your head 
on the ceiling relatively quick if you're doing it right. But I think the the other flip side of that though is like if you can if you're playing that with people that care about playing the shit well, then you can have a fun time playing those gigs. But for sure, and don't underestimate how important the connections you're making on on those gigs can be. Oh, absolutely for your life. You know, Every, everyone I know who's a great musician. When I was living in Boston, there was nobody on those gigs that wasn't really, really good. Right. Um, like Steve Hunt would play uh-huh. keys sometimes. Nice. Like yeah. he wasn't really in the band that I played in, but I think one time he might, we might have done one of those wedding gigs together. And I don't know, man. There's like, like Baron Brown was part of this agency, and that <laughs> dude's, he's a killer bass player, you know? Yeah. Like, um, I don't know, man. So it was like a pretty, pretty great, uh, great network of people just doing stuff so totally i don't i don't know i think that's that's the thing i mean there's a very weird small there's a very small club of people that play in the way that is not really beneficial to being a working player and i definitely you know and i'm saying that as somebody who really champions people being creative and being artistic and trying to reach for uncommon things but i think if it's about working and trying to do stuff with people um, if you're trying to do that from an artistic bend, I think maybe it's more forgiving, but I think if you're playing like utility bass parts, which would be like, if you're doing covers or like, that's, that's what I think of with weddings. It's like, you're doing utility work, but yeah. fun utility work. It's like, you have to, nobody wants to hear a reinterpreted baseline to, uh, <laughs> exactly to like, Ooh, uh, shining star. Or whatever. Right. Yeah. Right. Or even like kiss by Prince, like. You know what right. I mean? There's not really. It wasn't even a bass. Yeah, I mean, there's not, or it's so sparse that yeah. it's not there. I've heard live versions of it where there's really busy shit going on, and I sure. don't remember what the concert was, but there's definitely something I, ha- I have it somewhere. And whoever's playing bass um, is like playing a lot, but it's, mm. but it's like that's not actually part of the song. Um, and like <laughs> same with when doves cry. Like when doves cry, it's like there's no bass line in this at all. Like I remember I got a drink once, man, because like, right. It sounds yeah, stupid. Right. With, it sounds stupid with bass. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I don't know. I think I've been lucky that like the people who have like had things to say about my playing, you know, when I was doing too much as like a young musician, they were nice enough to do it, or they we were tight enough that if they weren't nice, like I got over it. Coming from a good place, or yeah, it was helpful and not dis- destructive. Because those, you know, when you're when you're vulnerable and young, like. If you don't, if you aren't lucky enough to have someone who's graceful about that, it can it can fucking debilitate you. You know, um, that's that can that can suck too. I saw I did a gig once with uh, Steve Teray. You know Steve Teray, he's like a yep. trombone. Yeah, so he would pick up bands, you know, um, as a lot of jazz musicians do in town. And so I did a gig of his at some club up here, and. Uh, Man, I saw him lay into a piano player who was at the time maybe 25 um, on stage. Like after the last tune, audience is still there. It's, you know, applause has died down and he's yelling at this guy in front of the audience. You know, if you ever play that fucking shit on my bandstand again, motherfucker, (laughs) you know, it was just like some really dark old school hazing shit. Yeah. And I know for a fact that guy like disappeared for a while. Um, so yeah, that's that's fucked up when that happens. 
Um, I always think too is like appreciating, understanding that as a musician, especially bass, you know, guitar, things that are very sort of. I always imagine I'm not one of them, but I imagine horn players have a different relationship to this because the way that they have to conceive of music is sort of abstract. Like it's in their minds less than it is. They're not looking at their fingers um, and their instruments aren't, don't lend themselves to like visual patterns the way ours do that. There is a lot of stuff that's happening in one's playing that is not about what the music's asking for. It's just about, the the things you're you're familiar with doing your muscle memory the patterns they make the visual patterns as if music cares that this is like a square and this is a diamond you know what i mean but but we can't help it as humans we kind of impose those things and i remember there's a willis quote i forget where i read it but he was basically saying like he was recognizing that he had these you know basically like what for him were clichés in his playing and it was just killing him and he said that at some point he's like, I made it a point for some period of time to actively do the opposite of the thing I wanted to do. Like the, the, I could, I was learning how to recognize when I, my muscle memory or my habit was, was, was driving a decision. And then in real time do whatever the opposite. So if it was like play high, I would play low. If it was play busy, I would play, I would play, you know, less, you know, that kind of thing. Just kind of training yourself to bring awareness to how much of the shit we do is just habit. You know, yeah. and it kind of forces you to, to kind of take that well, that little step back and, and and appreciate the bigger picture. That always helped me. That little do the opposite advice. Yeah, no, I've I mean I've I've played with people that really didn't want cliche bass parts. You know, mm. like like mm-hmm. just you know unless it was something that you couldn't really avoid. You know, like I, mean, I think sometimes like you just have to play the right thing. Like if you're playing like a shuffle or if you're playing like a blues. Right. Um, blues kind of thing, and and there's a special vocabulary for that that goes beyond just the rote stuff that oh, everybody for sure. learns. Shit's hard. Um, and I'm I'm admittedly not as well versed as some are in that. You know, like I, I can do it passably, but I don't. I wouldn't say that like I, I'm not an encyclopedia of like. They're like, no, make it more Kansas City. And you're like, oh, okay. What is that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, I mean, I, I'd like to get more into it because I, I find it fascinating. Yeah. And, totally. and I, I, I definitely feel like there's there's a lot of room to uh, explore that kind of stuff. But like, um, I yeah, I think I think there's there's a lot of shit, like the device type playing that drummers and bass players often kind of get saddled with having to decide how much they want to buy into it. You know, that's a real, it's a real challenging thing, man. I mean, and I, you know, I think sometimes you don't want to poke the creative bear too much because it's not that kind of thing. But yeah, yeah sometimes you got to like figure out, like sometimes great things can be born of like wanting to resist what would be the easiest thing to do. Totally. You know? But it's like pick your spots, right? It's sort of like, yeah. um, be, be sensitive. But that, yeah, part of that's just youth. You know, it's just kind of, you got to go through it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, well, last yeah, question, mm-hmm. last question. Um, what, uh, is there anything you've been checking out in terms of like books or, uh, movies or shows or, um, mm. records, any albums that you've been digging or any, any plugins you've been digging? Like what's been sort of like when you do feel like, you need some escapism. What have, what's been the go-to for that? Yeah. Um, let me think about this. Uh, books. 
honestly, man, I I have not been reading as much as I should. I've historically been a reader, but um, this is a good push to to revisit that. I've um because I do feel like I'm a little over like my screen time <laughs> statistics are not something I'm proud of at the moment. Um, <laughs> so yeah, book would be good, but um, but yeah, shows like I've been digging. Um, you know, of course, I did the whole Tiger King thing. Um, I skipped it. Did you? <laughs> yeah, I, I was aware of it. I had, there was a podcast called Joe Exotic that came out mm. a couple years ago that was about that whole thing, and I had listened to that whole thing. And so going into it, I was aware of it. Okay, um, that helped. I've been really. I, I've noticed. I mean, it's good. Whatever. You don't have to. I mean, maybe when the the buzz dies down, you'll feel inclined. Um, it's yeah. pretty entertaining. Uh, I've been really like going like straight comfort viewing recently because of everything that's going on. I got really back into Cheers. It the whole oh, series is on Netflix. That's a great. That's a great show. Oh, man. it's so I, I good. It's so consistent. It's so funny. It's such a comforting place to go to in the midst of all this chaos. So, um, yeah, I've been digging Cheers. I've been digging that show. Nailed it. You ever seen Nailed It? No, I haven't seen that. It's really funny, man. The premise is it's like a baking show, but and the and the host is uh, this woman who's really funny, so that helps. But it's basically they take three contestants, every episode's like a new one, and they have to there's they have to copy some really outrageously complicated and elaborate dessert thing i mean it's like things that look like animals or that like whole scenes from a book or like you know what i mean this like kind of really like top level and these are just amateur hack like bakers so the whole thing is like at the end they reveal like what they made you're kind of getting little glimpses of it here and there but they're always just hilariously horrible um so it's kind of celebrating like just how you know absurd it is to expect yourself to be good at it so it's kind of funny um <laughs> that sounds cool it's it's really funny um you know so i i've been into that and then um what else so then uh i mean musically again i think it's really been like a com- i've been seeking this isn't like a conscious thing i've been making but i've been like kind of going back to things that you know, comfort me that I'm familiar with that feel like connected to the the pre-pandemic time. <laughs> you know, um, that's just like I've, I've noticed a reaction I've I've had. I've so honestly, I've been I've been listening to a lot of classical music. Okay, um, yeah. What specifically? Just um, I've been I've been into I, partly as a result of there's this. So there's a YouTube channel that I, I recommend with reservations called um two set mm-hmm. um i think it's just two set like it's two guys who are violinists classical musicians and but they have this pretty big youtube channel that's all about kind of the classical music world so that got me into violin so i've been checking out um like violin concertos and um the, particularly there's a there's a violinist named hillary hahn um, who I've been really digging. She does a lot of really interesting stuff in classical and then kind of crossover stuff. Um, so yeah, I, I, that stuff I've been listening to, you know, things that calm me down like Satie 
things like that, like chill, you know, piano music. Um, yeah, and so that that yeah, I've been I've noticed I'm cons- consuming more more classical music. I think the music listening I'm now I'm wanting it to not be quite as active, um, you know. And then what else have I been checking out? Um, I've been um, kind of getting a little more into beat making or kind of just dipping my toe. I've never been like a beat maker guy, you know. That's like a whole world. Yeah. Um, you ever check out Kenny Beats's Cave? Uh, stuff. Yeah, it does on YouTube. yeah. I watch some of those episodes are funny as hell, dude. Yeah, they're super. Fun. The, the Thundercat one's hilarious. Yeah. Um, so that kind of like just watching his process. I've been. I'm not really an Ableton person, but um, that was kind of inspiring. And I think that making beats is the sort of like musical activity that this time is good for. Yeah. You know, it doesn't really require a lot of interaction with people, and you can kind of. It's fun because of you know sampling is fun because you can just draw on especially technology now you can just kind of grab shit anywhere Um, yeah i just bought one of those um teenage engineering pocket operators like the po33 oh those are dope man yeah that little sampler is rad as hell i've been working on some stuff i'll probably put it up soon um oh dig but um it's been fun man and you can there's a lot you can do with it like it's not not quite as uh you know like there's like been that whole uh You'd know this because because uh, you're into this kind of stuff, but like, you know, like the SP303 and yeah. the SP404, but the SP303 was like, there was like a setting on there that inspired like the Wolf compressor, you know, uh-huh. and, and there was like a, you know, a whole thing like Mad Lib was like way into the SP303. So it's kind of like this lo-fi thing that you can still do really cool stuff with. Sure. Um so it's been fun that, and that sound that lo-fi sound is like more and more valid these days for for whatever reason just because tastes shift or whatever it's a reaction to the hi-fi digital thing or something i don't know yeah it's fun um, to be in the box but it's fun to just have something that's tactile that you can hold and doesn't really look that threatening but can do a lot you know yeah i mean here at my studio but i've been doing that i've been fucking around i have a, a pretty nice tape machine ampex 440 it's a one inch four track um that I've always been a little lazy to like really get into, but I've been, yeah, just fucking around with getting stuff out of the box onto tape back in, you know, um, I, it, another thing I do for, to kind of chill is I kind of repair, restore old hi-fi or like tube stuff, tube guitar amps, studio tube stuff. Um, and, uh, I've been, I have a little workbench here where I can kind of just zone out and yeah, trying to integrate that stuff. Like I, I really find, the more you can get stuff out of the box, the more fun, you know, production, mixing, composition is, you know, and sure. and not being too precious about like how, because um, a lot of the the people I dig, whether it's like Chad Blake or Steve Albini or Greg Kirsten or whoever, like people who I think are like make really interesting sounding recordings, like that's a big part of their process. Um, it, not just getting like stuff out into the hardware world, but and it, it, but it's really not giving a shit about what that hardware, like what the brand is, <laughs> or like how quote unquote hi-fi it is. You know, just just playing, um, and you know, manipulating sound. Um, you know, like through synths, like like a lot, of, a lot of synths have audio inputs, where you can I, actually use the filters or, or drive the filter really hard and trigger the the envelopes with other things, and yeah, just fun little stuff like that. You know tactile things 
Right. Yeah. Yeah, that stuff's awesome, man. I mean, I I think that's a really interesting way to to create. Um, and it's it's also, I don't know. I mean, I have like, I have a turntable that I listen to records on, but I also have another turntable that I've been like pulling some samples off of just for the hell of it. You know, Dope. so it's, I don't know. I'm kind of messing with some stuff. You have a phono any- preamp that you stick in between, or is it like do it for you? Is it one of those? I had one of the ones. This this is like a built-in. It's got the built-in thing. Oh no! Um, yeah. I got a better. I got a better turntable a couple years ago. So um, it's not like audiophile level, but like um, the first one was just sort of like an Audio Technica. Like it's called like a something sixty, and it was just sort of like I think it was like one hundred and twenty bucks. And then I replaced it with something better. Yeah. Um, that that's like direct drive, and um, sure. you can like change the cartridge and stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah i'm not like so hardcore with the vinyl but this thing's fine for pulling you know it's for what yeah, for what i'm example. using it for it's it's great for it so yep, that's fun I've, I've been messing with it i was gonna sell it but i'm kind of glad i didn't because now i can kind of just have it set up where all my other stuff is um, that's dope i was gonna get into i was just reading about um uh sample like pulling shit out of the box onto onto cassette tape oh wow um, and then coming back in, whether it's like you want the whatever, you know, the compression, yada, yada, warmth of the tape, or you can some depends on the on the machines, like, you know, ways you can actually manipulate it and use it as an effect and delay and all kinds of interesting stuff. But um, but that's I recommend that as like a fun thing, because like tape machines are like cassette tape players are like dirt cheap right now. And oh, OK, yeah. Um you know, just buy like a box of old tapes and see what happens when you send your shit out onto him and back in. You can fuck yeah. with the speed, you know, on some or the bias and all kinds of cool things can come out of that. Wow. Yeah, tapes are weird, man. I was always kind of, I was kind of like my old man was like, he, his whole thing was like vinyl or CDs. He always felt like tapes were kind of a sub, yeah, a sub right. bar formula. He's right from like a fidelity point of view for sure. Yeah, but there's definitely something to tapes. I mean, I had them. I remember yeah. what it was like to navigate that as like a portable format. Like I remember, mm-hmm. I I would know. I maybe this is how it is for everyone that listened to tapes. Like, did you ever do that thing where you kind of knew where if there was a song on the other side, where you'd have to listen to, where you could flip it and then it's like <laughs> <Totally>. right. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, tape skills, tape chops. <laughs> exactly. Pencil out, or when it would get stuck in the player, and then it would be a mess I would remember when the freeway used to have like unspooled tape all over it because people were throwing tapes out their window you don't see that anymore no I I haven't I mean yeah it's weird I remember like seeing CDs when people would like toss oh, yeah. them out I remember in LA like driving down the 405 and there'd be like some or 101 like and there'd be like trees and you'd see always see like tape just spooled all like like TP'd but it was tape <laughs> I remember seeing like uh, the old AOL boot up discs that people got for free like oh my god they were everywhere yeah it was kind of a kind of a, um, was a thing. thing for a minute yeah yeah what about movies man are there any movies you've seen that um, um let me think about this are there movies I've seen you know what I just I've been like are you new you mean or just whatever uh, it could be new to you, not necessarily like. Right. Um, I have been going. I kind of like went down a Hitchcock 
thing for a while. Um, oh, wow. Which ones? So, uh, the two I watched most recently is The Lady Vanishes, which there are two versions of. I recommend the old one. Because Hitchcock, like before Hitchcock kind of began production, this is probably going to really, sound really ignorant to like a real cinephile, but essentially Hitchcock was like a sort of journeyman director in England in the early days of like the film industry there long before he was like a big, you know, North by Northwest vertigo like those. So there's a whole lot. He made a lot of movies, very prolific. And they were all kind of in this, like most of them were in this mystery thriller thing. Um, and one of the, I think the best of that period, the kind of pre American crossover is this movie, the lady vanishes, which is about this old kind old woman who's getting on a train and this young woman kind of encounters her on the way in and helps her out. And they kind of decide to sit next to each other and they get on this train and they fall asleep. And when she wakes up, the woman, the old woman's gone and no one knows and no one believes that she was ever existed. And so it's kind of like all takes place on a train, you know, which I dig. Um, so that one. And then I also watched recently, uh, um, the man who knew too much, which is, okay. which is cool because it's uh, Jimmy Stewart, uh, Doris day. It's cool. Cause Doris day, there's a couple like musical numbers in it and she's like killing singer. Um, so that, um, those, and then what's totally different. I got into the, uh, have you watched the Sturgill Simpson kind of album movie? Um, I have. Oh, dude! Sound and it's called Sound and Fury. Oh, dude! It's it's so it's Sturgill. I, I don't know if you're hip to him. He's kind of like an alt country, really great songwriter. His latest record, he released on Netflix a full length animated sort of, you know, in the like kind of like the wall or whatever. I don't know of equivalents uh, of of his record. So it's the record playing from start to finish, but it's all to animation and it's all like cutting edge Japanese animation um, different uh, animators all from Japan um, it's super cool um, yeah I'll check it out man recommend I'll that highly yeah get one of those edibles going and check that out <laughs> yeah that's been an indispensable part of my <laughs> uh, my routine yeah thank god the uh, city governments are keeping it essential quote unquote yeah, no, it's important, dude. I mean, I, it's, it's like, Oh, it helps. <laughs> it, it helps. And, and, um, yeah, it, it's, I can't, I got nothing but good things to say about it. Um, I think if, if people can find what works for them with that stuff, that's probably the most in, important thing. Like I'm not, I, I'm definitely not somebody that needs a lot to get there. So, um, you know, and luckily there's things for all different weight classes when it comes to uh right tolerance and stuff and you're like, like an edible guy exclusively right or is that not accurate yeah because yeah i i quit cigarettes at the end of um 2003 mm -hmm. and so I, i've just been very wary about uh, putting anything into my lungs like even like i won't vape i don't i don't trust it yeah, yeah um yeah. let's like fool me once big tobacco but <laughs> i know <laughs> but everything else I don't trust or, you know, it's just, it feels harsh. Like I know, I know weed is not kind to the lungs, man. Like no. even if it doesn't have like burning a that, plant. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So edibles just seems to be the thing. I've definitely overshot with that stuff and it's not fun. It's but, not um, fun at all. Yeah. But you're probably good at it now. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, um, 
I got it down to a science, and no so I don't I don't try to mess with it after that. Like I kind of know, I know what I can have, um, mm. and what time I can have it, and you know I don't sleep with edibles anymore. Like I don't like take them before I go to bed, but I have done that before, and it's been helpful. But nah, just during the day, like you know, it's not it's not a bad way to operate sometimes. Um, yeah, yeah, man. Whatever, whatever gets you through. You know, better that than a bottle of whiskey or whatever. I know that that's got to be a tough thing for folks too that are like fighting that because. Oh you know, man, yeah, it's definitely, definitely Temp- a thing. Tempting. Yeah, I've looked at statistics. Like, booze sales are up like twenty five percent or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Well, man, well, thanks for uh, thanks for doing this. Appreciate the conversation. Pleasure. Always good to talk to you. I'll yeah. talk to you soon. All right, man. Take care. All right, man. You too. Bye. All right. That's going to do it for this episode. For more about Jonathan Herrera, go to JonathanHerrera.com. If you want to learn about his studio, go to TheDimeStudios.com. New episode will be next week on Tuesday. Thanks so much for listening, folks, and be well. Be well.